Listener Production. For some of us, the decision whether or not to have kids is simple. You just know somehow. But that's not the case for everyone. We're raised to believe that the desire for children just comes sort of unbidden and then just remains unwavering. And I just don't think that's true for a lot of people. I think that it really is. There's like a calculus that goes into it, especially now when it's um, more of a choice than ever for many people. That's Gina Rushton, who was a hard no when it came to having kids, but a medical emergency in her late 20s made her reassess. And reassess she did. In this interview, you'll hear that she talks through a lot of the anxieties we face in the world right now and tries to find a way to process a decision that women in the past have never really had the chance to make. It was just expected of them. The question is, should I have a baby in today's world? That is our briefing. First, today's headlines. G'day, it's Jan Fran here. We're starting with some breaking news over in the United States and Hunter Biden, uh, the son of US President Joe Biden, has been charged with three gun offences. So he is looking at a possible criminal trial now in 2024, which is terrible timing for his father, who will be campaigning for re-election for the presidency. This has happened because a grand jury in Delaware voted to press charges. This in the United States is known as an indictment. Um, And it was part of a five-year investigation into Hunter Biden and his past. Yeah, well, Janet, it was only on Wednesday that we were bringing the news that the Republicans had called for an impeachment inquiry into the US President Joe Biden as to whether he was improperly involved with Hunter Biden's business affairs while he was vice president. Lots of Biden news this week. Lots of Biden news. It could get very messy for both him and his father. Mm. Uh, And (laughs) not that presidential campaigners need any more lawsuits or court dealings, but Donald Trump has four, (laughs) not to forget about him. So if he does end up being the Republican frontrunner, as he seems to be, it will be another Biden-Trump run-up and they'll both be dealing with these extraneous court cases. Yeah, good to have some court cases on both sides. Oh, is it? (laughs) An Indigenous Senator, Jacinta Napajimpa-Price, has given a speech at the National Press Club explaining why she believes the voice to parliament is flawed in its foundations and saying this about colonisation. Could I ask you, please, do you believe the history of colonisation continues to have an impact on some Indigenous Australians? Uh, No. I'll be honest with you, no. I don't think so. A positive impact, absolutely. Yeah, so those comments have been criticised by Linda Burney, the Indigenous Australians Minister. She accused Price of a betrayal uh, and she said that you only have to look at the stolen generations and the impact that has had in terms of trauma and pain. Yeah, this was a very fiery speech by Jacinta Price. She's really looking to make her mark here as we gear up for that October 14 date. Um, she used very, very strong language. She said the voice proposal was built on lies, um, you know, which is a wording that I she hasn't previously used and kind of knew that it would get media traction because it is so mm. strong. She is the co-leader of the No campaign and she's been very public, but she's also a very strong asset for Peter Dutton and Team No in the coalition. And you saw a bunch of them there in the front row really cheering her on. Um, I think she's able to say things that they perhaps cannot because she has personal experience yeah. and because she is um, an Indigenous Australian and can speak from that perspective um, in a way that they can't. Oh, absolutely, and rightly so. I do wonder where the No campaign would be without her. She has become almost the single 
front person for the No campaign. And yes, she brings that lived experience and with that comes a lot of authority, but where would the campaign be without her? Well, I guess it would just be Peter Dutton and David Littleproud talking amongst themselves. I don't know. Yeah, she adds a lot to their campaign and they've really clung on to her. And this is an update on a story that we brought you yesterday Mm. on the Australian very rich man, the multimillionaire Tim Gurner, who said that he wants the unemployment rate to rise. Uh, He also, he said some other dodgy stuff, but anyway, he's come out with an apology. Just to remind you, though, of what he did say, here it is. We need to see unemployment rise. Unemployment has to jump 40, 50%, in my view. We need to see pain in the economy. We need to remind people that they work for the employer, not the other way around. Yeah, so that last bit, I think, really stung for a lot of people. In a statement, he now says he deeply regrets making these remarks and that they were wrong. And the apology also went on to say that my comments were deeply insensitive to employees, tradies and families across Australia who are affected by these cost of living pressures and job losses. So a pretty straight up, no holds barred apology. Yes, I would. I'm just going to go ahead and imagine here that he would have been uh, bombarded with criticism for what he said. It went viral right around the world. He's, I'd like to think he's reflected, but the cynical part of me just thinks he's in damage control because he has these two businesses that are no doubt being affected by his comments. I think we saw one of them, uh, which is a business of spas and wellness, the, one of the leaders there had to kind of write an email mm. to staff saying, hey, guys, I think he called them, hey, St Haven family. Um, yeah, so I've, I've got it here. So to our St Haven family, I want to start by saying that I've had the pleasure of working with Tim for almost two years now and can hand on heart say that his care and love for both the Gurner Group and St Haven team is immense. Mm-hmm. Um, the comments were in no way directed at our team's. So he was talking about the other ones. The property group. <laughs> Not you wellness company work, because you guys are great. It's those other lazy tradies, I think he was oh, talking but about. But also just the corporate speak of, hey, family, we love you like family, even though the owner of the company has turned around at a summit and said that we need to remind workers who they work mm. for. That doesn't sound like family vibes to me, but corporate speak is interesting. Yeah, it's been such a, an interesting story to watch. I mean... Part of what he was saying is similar to what the Reserve Bank is saying, um, that we need to drive productivity. It was just the way he coloured that and what he blamed that lack of productivity on, where I think he departed from the Reserve Bank. He departed on a freight train. (laughs) He went through some similar stations, but he kept the journey going a long way. (laughs) I think the other thing he's saying that the Reserve Bank is also saying is that unemployment needs to rise. They're saying it needs to go up to deal with inflation, he's saying it needs to go up to remind people who they work for and drive productivity. Anyway, he thought he was in a room with a certain type of people and then when it got broadcast to the rest of the world, things changed. The context changed dramatically and the impact of his remarks started to um, unravel. All right, I'm next, Jan. I've got an interview. Ask a question that you and I have already answered. Should we have children? Now, Gina Rushton is not taking the decision to have a baby lightly. In her book, The Most Important Job in the World, 
She challenges almost everything about motherhood and society. She goes deep into the anxieties of our times to try and process this huge decision. Now, the book and her story and her ideas, they're resonating so hard that this book's about to be released in the US. Gina, thanks for joining us. As I said at the start of the episode, a lot of people make this decision very simply, almost on gut feeling. They just seem to know. It hasn't been like that for you, has it? No, no, 80,000 words. (laughs) Um, No, and I think that's kind of a myth I wanted to challenge. Like I think we're raised to believe that the desire for children just comes sort of unbidden and then just remains unwavering. And I just don't think that's true for a lot of people. I think that it really is, there's like a calculus that goes into it, especially now when it's um, more of a choice than ever for, for many people. So, yeah, I want to challenge that idea that the question can come before the answer. Okay, so why did this suddenly become a question for you? Because for a long time, you were in the no camp. Yeah, I really didn't think I wanted kids. And then I found myself in hospital in a lot of pain and I was told that my ovary was dead and that they were ha- they're going to have to cut it out and, like, it's really going to affect your fertility and, like, there's no time to talk about it, like, let's just get in there. And I was really upset and I was really surprised that I was upset. And it wasn't like a moment of, oh, I actually do want kids. It was just a moment of I'm not really solid on why I don't and I need, if, I'm, if this choice is going to be taken away from me, like, I really need to be able to say this is why I didn't want kids and I'm comfortable and I'm happy with and secure in that decision. And in the end, I actually kept my ovary, but a big cyst had burst and they drained all this blood out and found that I had endometriosis, which I probably should have known. But that also has kind of hastened the question a bit because obviously that affects your fertility. So that's turned the sand timer a little bit too. Wow. Okay. So that sends you on this much bigger, deeper journey to really go deep on that decision and really know where you stand with it. And the early part of this journey, at least the way you portray it in the book, goes very big and broad. You mm. you talk about a lot of the anxieties in the world, both in our current times and in history, particularly for women. You know, you write about the impacts of colonialism, racism, abortion rights, all these very, very heavy considerations. Was that where you started the journey? What made you really think about those bigger picture things, not so much the, the personal things or, or other things, because you sort of end up there later? Yeah. I mean, I wrote the book in the aftermath of that horrific bushfire season. And during that bushfire season, I was working as a reproductive rights reporter and I was interviewing, you know, obstetricians about delivering babies into like smoky maternity wards. And everyone around me was kind of at the age where they were considering, do we want kids? Do we not want kids? And it really became less of an abstract kind of existential question around climate and more of a like, is this what summer is going to be like every year? And if so, like, do I want to have a kid? So I think I was definitely grappling with climate change as a bigger, broader, intellectual but actual real question. Mm. Um, And then some of those bigger things around, you know, around abortion rights. Like I think I'd worked for a long time dealing with people who saw motherhood as the default, really wanted to coerce women into motherhood through policies that denied them reproductive choice. And I really resented that. Mm. This idea that if you had a uterus, you just had to become a mother. Mm. And the other arc that's threaded through all of that thinking is your career. And so you talk about starting out as a young journalist and how excited and passionate you were about Mm -hmm. it. And you talk about the fulfillment of the early part of your career, almost like it's mutually exclusive to potentially having a child later on. Yeah. And then as you go through that journey, 
you talk about how that fulfillment in your career wears off. Yeah. So how does that journey with your work impact your thinking about having a baby? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, so I was raised on a type of feminism that was very, like I started my cadetship at a newspaper the year that Lean In came out. And so it was this real girl boss feminism, like having a child is kind of daggy and like that's not, you know, you're not going to find freedom and emancipation and empowerment in the home. Like you only find it through the office. Mm. Um, This really corporate white, like neoliberal feminism that encourages particularly millennial women to kind of forge their entire identity in the workplace. And so I think when people think about having kids, it's like, well, if not kids, then what? And for my generation, it's definitely like a career is enough of an answer. Mm. If you tell people it's my career, they might make a range of assumptions about you, but it's genuinely accepted as like a decent reason. You know, if you're not producing children, well, you're producing profit or you're producing meaning through your work. Mm. Like many women my age, like there's a real resistance to that now or a kind of I think people are realizing, oh, this is exhausting. Like, is this, Yeah. do I want my entire life to be tied to my output, which usually benefits someone else? And everyone just felt tired. And I was writing this in the pandemic and everyone was like, oh God, like, is this it? There hasn't been enough narratives for what a life can be without children and without a career and that it's meaningful and that you can still have community and you can still have fulfillment, you can still have intellectual stimulation and all of those things. I think that there is a generation of women who I think are kind of waking up to the fact that it doesn't have to be a career and it doesn't have to be children. That it's a false binary. Yeah, it's a false binary. Or what about the idea that you can have both? Because that's also got some problems, right? Yeah, totally. And I think that... um, there's also like many women who were sold that lie and it's just, it's impossible. Well, what's the truth? I mean, my opinion is that it's just a, a hot mess of compromises. That's yes, life, you know. totally. The other thing that I delve into is it is possible for some women who are extremely privileged. Like, of course, you can have a career and you can have many children if you are offsetting some of those caring mm. responsibilities and that labor to yeah. another woman usually. It's a class thing. Totally. We've talked about the sort of big picture political global anxieties. We've talked about the career journey. What happened when you went more personal, you know, talking Mm. to your mom and your close friends and and the reflections that came from those conversations? Yeah. So I'm one of four and my mum had her first kid when she was 18. So I'm on a completely different, like my grandmother was a grandmother by 38. So I'm making this decision in an entirely different context. Mm. And my mum was my primary carer. And I think watching her care for four kids really put in perspective the labour that motherhood involves Mm. and the lack of appreciation and and value that we place on that labour. As in like, it's not compensated, but we also degrade it through other ways and and make it out to be kind of um, easy when it's not. Mm. The book got really personal when I started to evaluate my relationship with my mum and my relationship to motherhood in general. But also everyone around me was making decisions about whether or not to have kids. And many of the people interviewed in the book who were completely ambivalent, completely indecisive, or really, really didn't want kids. Now (laughs) the book's published, now have kids or Mm. are pregnant or have babies or whatever. So I've also seen that, how quickly this decision can be made and how much you can swing from one way to the other, Mm. which has been really eye-opening as well. And I think the other thing that was honestly really challenging to interview people about and and write about is that, you know, I never 
intended for the book to have a chapter on fertility. I thought, well, that's for some people that have made their mind up. Like you think about fertility once you know you want to do it and then you Mm. think about how you're going to do it if you have issues. But for many people, like that question comes in, could I, comes in earlier than should I. I found those conversations really hard, particularly knowing that my fertility might be compromised, Mm. speaking to people who have just gone through, like, you know, there's a couple in there that I interviewed who gone through 10 rounds of IVF now oh, yeah. and people who've experienced pregnancy loss and people who are making families with surrogates and donors and all of that kind of thing. And you sort of think, well, God, like I might want it, but do I want it that much? So that's a whole other question as well. I think it's really important to understand the context you wrote the book in. Like mm. the bushfires, these apocalyptic, yeah, unprecedented bushfires here in Australia, followed by a global pandemic, yes, which scared the hell out of us on a health level, yeah. um, on a social cohesion level, and on a, on a financial level, especially for those in early stages of our careers and your the company you work for went under during that time. Mm. I think that's part of the book as well, speaking to the, as you say, the anxiety of the times. Yeah. I find it unnecessarily heavy. Like yeah. <laughs> I, I, I prefer to look at all the amazing things we've achieved. And I know you might say, well, that's a position of privilege, you know, mm. middle-class white male, of course, you're going to be more optimistic about the future of the world. But mm. life is, as you say in the book, awful and beautiful. It just depends which weighting you give to each and what your view is on that weighting going forward. Yeah. And, and the book is really like, it is a case for hope. We are a really idealistic generation who want more from our relationships. We want more from ourselves. We want more from our workplace. Everything. We want more from our politicians. Like there is a genuine sense of it doesn't need to be like this. And I actually found people had more productive ways of thinking than like climate doomerism or or just negativity about all of it, really. Like even in the chapter about millennial men, it's really about like how men have been socialized to emotionally repress things, not express things like the way that they've been socialized and the way that everyone involved in those particularly heterosexual relationships want things to be better and believe they can be better and believe it's completely unnecessary that these dynamics exist. Like there was a real sense of things can be different. Mm. Great. Bit of hope to end it on there. Thanks so much, (laughs) Gina. Thanks for having me. That was Gina Rushton. She's a journalist and author of the book, The Most Important Job in the World. And to find out exactly where she lands, you'll have to read the book, but just loosely saying she's not a hard no anymore. All right, tomorrow morning, the weekend briefing will drop into your feed for some interesting listening with Jamila Rizvi. Jamila, who are you interviewing this week? Hey, Tom. Hey, team. I have had such a good chat in advance of this weekend. I had a conversation that our listeners will hear tomorrow morning with Sean Kelly. Now, Sean is a columnist for the nine newspapers and he's a regular contributor to the monthly. But most important for this conversation is that he was a political advisor to two different Australian prime ministers. He was an advisor to Kevin Rudd and also to Julia Gillard. So in this episode, which is part of our our special series we're doing at the moment on the weekend briefing, we talked everything politics, not just the day-to-day of what's going on right now, although we couldn't help ourselves but touch on a bit of that, but we talked about the big stuff, about how politics is changing, about the fracturing of the two-party system here in Australia, about how we've become so entrenched in our different camps and we're not that open to hearing other people's opinions. 
and what it means if we keep treating politics like a game. Sean Kelly on the weekend briefing with Jamila. Look forward to that one. Hope you have an amazing weekend. Um, a big thank you to our hardworking team here on the briefing, and we'll catch you next week. Listener.